community because we lack the faith in Jesus Christ to do those things. It was a big challenge, uh, and it definitely rocked my heart, uh, but it was exciting to see what God's Word did and how it convicted so many hearts. We, I know we had a great community group discussion, and I talked with a whole lot of you guys that, uh, that really felt like the Lord was speaking last week. So even though you weren't here, somehow the Spirit still was. I don't, oh, know, I don't know how thing. that even works. That is a good thing. God, this week, God's good. <laughs> this, yeah, God is good all the time. This week, we are going to continue our series of Mark. We're going to be in 6, 6B. You don't get that all the time where we split the verses. Yeah, we did this time. Yeah. We did. 6B to 29. So if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there, follow along with us. It'll be on the screen. We do have some tables in the back at the Grab a Bible table. And that is actually what it's called. There's a sign that says that. Nice. Back there. Uh, tough crowd this morning. Essentially, God's going to tell us this morning we're not prepared to live until we're prepared to die. Yes. A little more somber message maybe than last week, and yet a powerful one. As life and death are wrapped up one with another. Shall we begin? Bob's excited. Dano's excited. Lorraine's excited. <laughs> we've, been, we've been watching a preacher online that's from the South, and he's always asking for amens. Can I get an Amen. But we feel everybody like all right. That's what he always yeah, everybody asks. Everybody all right? You with me? Can I get an amen? Hey man. Hey man. Hey man. Yeah. It, I, I figure if he has to ask that many times, he must not be a very good preacher. So I, <laughs> I expect a lot of amens today without being asked. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Let me kick us off before we get in too much more trouble. <laughs> Verse six B of Mark six. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So, Jesus. Only, only one tunic. <laughs> not two. My, my wife layers, and she would be very bummed by this because oh yeah. she wants the layers. You have to have it. <laughs> so we start out with he went among the villages teaching. And like I said, we just recapped it. He'd been rejected in his hometown. He'd been rejected in garrisons by the Gentiles. He's been rejected by the uh, Jewish leaders. Um, again, m- people are missing who Jesus is, uh, why he was here, what he was doing. So Jesus has a very unique response to adversity, doesn't he? His response to adversity is to press on through it, to continue on through it. And, and really, when it comes down to it, and we'll kind of see it here in a second, it's to multiply, mm-hmm. through the adversity to multiply. And so what does he do? He says, uh, and he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So he's begun to train his disciples, his closest um, his closest people, and he's training them for ministry for this specific reason. And so now is the time to kind of send them out to multiply two by two. Um, multiplication is important. Uh, we always say we should be mentored and we should mentor another. Um, a, a good mentoring or discipling model that's been said to me, many of you guys who've heard my preaching will, will recognize this, but I think it's, it's worth repeating again. Uh, you take somebody to train them in what you're doing and, and teach them how to duplicate that ministry and even replace you. you, s- you it's an I do, you watch, and we discuss. Then I do and you help. 
we discuss. Next, you do, and I help, we discuss. And finally, you do, I watch, and we discuss. There's really good wisdom in that kind of mentoring-discipling relationship. Jesus has been doing and talking with the disciples. He's had them helping him along the way. He's actually now sending them out to do it. Of course, he goes with them because he's God and his Holy Spirit is upon them, but he's sending them out now on their own, which is really cool. Yeah, so Jesus is doing something, you know, here on earth and his ministry that we see here in Mark that, that's going to be for all mankind. Yep. It's this mission of, of grace, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so the method that he chooses is to tell the whole world through the people that have been transformed by grace. It's that grace mission. And so he's, used the, he's using these disciples, people who were once lost but now have found Jesus, to go and do the same for others. Well, and isn't that usually the way it goes? I mean, those who have tried a product and loved the product are the best ambassadors mm-hmm. and marketers for the product. You know, you get the latest phone and you're like, this has got the best features and takes the best cameras like this or this and i love this phone so very much and we become like a commercial for the phone because we've experienced it and like it so very much that's god's agenda that we would experience his grace to such a degree we become his ambassadors now throughout the world and that's just the way he's chosen to do it so he's sending them out two by two mark tells us here and that's kind of fun it is and i think there's some significance for this purpose one thing is in that culture, the law required two witnesses to establish uh, a matter of, of truth in an, in an area. Mm-hmm. It also tones down the individuality of of these disciples. Um, you know, it, it would be easy for a leader to become prideful and, and gather a following and kind of go off and, and do their own thing. And so having another person to kind of bring you back down to earth to help and, and assist and, and be there helps tone down that individuality. Um, and then it, it also suggests the necessity of teamwork. You know, we, we often say that we're not meant to walk in Christianity. We're not meant to go through life on our own, by ourselves. We have a family. We have others to walk with us. And, and it's the same here with these disciples, sending them out two by two, teamwork, go get it done. And it's something that we have really embraced, and we try to, again, communicate to all of you that there's something wonderful about team ministry. Uh, Ecclesiastes 4.9 says two are better than one. Uh, there's just wonderful things that happen from the perspectives of life. Drew, his personality, his giftings are so different than mine, which makes this a wonderful teamwork. Every once in a while, we're going to fight like brothers because we see things differently. But when there's love and there's grace behind it, we're going to get beyond that and we're going to be even more powerful together. I think um, one of the things that helps me a lot is that I'm a, I'm a pretty emotional guy, um, and, and there are times when I, I get kind of down from ministry, when I am discouraged when a, a family decides to leave, or I get discouraged when somebody's uh, upset with me, and, and, I'm, and I'm starting to do the people-pleasing thing, and Drew can lift me up when I'm feeling down. Um, any moment now, his wife is going to text him that she's uh, in labor. Checking right now. Just He's to make checking sure. right now. He literally told me this morning, hey, if I get a text, you're teaching and leading, and leading four more songs. And I'm like, yes, I am. Awesome. The ability for that to happen. Amen. Was that a slam on Drew? Or? Yeah, I feel no. like 
<laughs> no, I feel I'm attacked here. No, no, no. How cool is that, though, that <laughs> together we're able to be strong when the other's weak or sick or and all those kind of things. And I think there's accountability. And personally, I just think it's a whole lot more fun. Uh, we like laughing together. We like living life together. Uh, Hilda will tell you th the atmosphere in the office. There's songs being hummed and there's loud voices and there's music being played and we're, we're being silly. But I tell you what, as a team, I think we get a ton more accomplished. And I think in ministry mathematics, one plus one is never just two. It's far more than that. It's multiplicative. It's it's exponential. And, and I think that's kind of another uh, of the reasons he sends them out two by two. So he sends them out again, two by two, gives them authority to yep. do the ministry that we've seen up to this point. And he gives them a, a very interesting charge here in verses eight and nine. Um, at first sight, these couple of verses, they may seem a little bit weird, but there's some there's some meaning behind these interesting uh, instructions, this charge that Jesus gives them. So his, mis his message is, is simple. It's take the bare minimum, nothing excessive, and go out and do ministry. Now, um, there's a couple things I think that we can kind of talk about when we look at this, these couple of verses, these lists that, that Jesus gives his disciples. The list here is nearly identical to the list that God told the Israelites back in Exodus. If you remember a couple years ago when we went through the book of Exodus, he gives them a list and tells them as they go out um, from Egypt, yeah. this is what you need and this is all you need. So in that sense, the comparison and why Jesus does this, you've got the sense that Jesus is a better Moses, that this is even a better Exodus into a foreign land that's going to be conquered in Jesus' name for the kingdom. You see some cool imagery there uh, uh, some with that comparison. I think uh, a second thing that we can point out is that the bare, ne bare necessities keep you from being materialistic. Like, well, I've got a, uh, I'm, I'm an overpacker. I know, I know that much. I, I want to make sure I have everything I could possibly need for the journey. I want to overpack. And, and I think um, he wants to say, uh, especially don't go buy a bunch of extra stuff on the ministry's dime so that you can really look plush and great and have the best tie and, and the perfect sandals and all that kind of stuff. We don't do ministry to benefit personally and to get rich. Uh, and then also, I think the, the biggest thing, just like in the Exodus, don't worry, I'm going to provide for you. You don't have to think of everything and plan for every occasion. I'm the God that will provide for you as you go. So that, I think, maybe is the biggest reason for the bare necessities there. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So we got more instructions here, Pastor Drew. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. It's an interesting phrase. Yeah, it is. <laughs> St stay there. So I think kind of what he's saying is it might be tempting to once you get into a house, someone else says, hey, why don't you come stay with us? You know, we've got TiVo, we've got Hot Tub, we've got... Is TiVo even a thing anymore? I don't know. Yeah. DVR, whatever you want to call it. we got a DVR and a Hot Tub. Yeah. <laughs> you can watch whatever. Oh. we got Disney Plus. Well, then so. I'll go over to your house. Yeah. The Mandalorian. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so I think what what Jesus is getting at here is don't just jump to the next best thing. Build relationships. And relationships are built over time. 
it's an investment that you put into a person over time. It doesn't just happen uh, overnight. And so don't just go to the next best thing. I think that's kind of a good word for us, honestly. You boomers and, and boomers and beyond, I think you guys are doing great at loyalty and sticking things out. Gen Xers and millennials, you guys. <laughs> what? <sighs> we, we get antsy and we just think let's go to the next shiny new thing. There's a new church down the road that's got a, a shinier foyer and bigger urinals. I mean, what? Their worship team is just so much better than that loser with a guitar and that weirdo kicking his leg on the piano. I mean, they've got this, they've got that, and we think, I'm a little uncomfortable, I need to move on. I'm a little uncomfortable, I need to move on. Uh, and I think the Lord would give us a tough word this morning. No, s- stick it out. That's family, that's relationships. Those things get built over time, and we need to love each other. Love each other enough to, when things are hard, stick it out and say hard things and talk through hard things. And invest. Don't just invest. go to consume. Invest where you are. Don't just come on Sunday morning to see what you can get, but invest in those relationships. Invest in Relationships serving. built on grace. That sounds familiar, Kevin. Yeah. So it goes on to say in verse 11, and if any place <laughs> will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. I love this verse. Interesting. It's this prophetic utterance, if you will, against those who reject the prophet's words. So it's an interesting concept for us to think through, though, today in our call to evangelism. Well, I don't think we can take it as a total corollary. (laughs) I mean, we might like to. Um, Then it would be kind of easy to be like, I'm going to evangelize to someone. And they're like, nah, I'm not into that. And you're like, well, shake the dust at you. I reject you and just move on. I don't know that it's a direct corollary. This is Jesus' (laughs) instructions for this mission, uh, not necessarily a blanket command. But I think if we understand we are going to face opposition, we are going to face disappointment and heartbreak as we share the gospel with others. And there may be times, there probably will be times, when someone rejects the gospel to such a degree Uh, rejects maybe even you on account of the gospel to such degree that you may have to move on from that place. Uh, Continue to pray. Continue um, to believe in faith that God can turn even the hardest heart. Um, But there are times when you're going to have to move on, remembering, hey, I'm called to be faithful to plant the seed. God's the one that grows the seed. Amen? I ask for an amen. Amen. Verse 12, I can say that because I'm from the South. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many uh, demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. Um, Right off the bat, it's a beautiful picture of obedience Mm -hmm. for the disciples going out and obeying and doing what God uh, or what Jesus told them to do. So it makes us ask a question, are we as obedient when God has sent us out? Do we listen to the voice of God when he tells us or asks us to share the good news with others? Maybe it's that next door neighbor. Maybe it's that friend at work or that family member that you've been witnessing to for months. Are are we listening to the voice of God? Are we being aware of those God moments that he gives us to share his word with others? 
Uh, they preach repentance, it says, in their obedience, and that's exactly what they saw modeled. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus had been preaching repentance. So, reminder, what does repent mean? It means to change your mind. You change your mind about uh, God, changing your mind about your sin, uh, and about the solution to your sin. Uh, it, it's a change of mind that should lead to a change of feet and actions. So that's what they preached. Again, just what they saw preached, they preached as well, trying to get people to say, hey, I need God, and he's the solution to my problem. So they're preaching repentance, mm -hmm. but what else are they preaching on the mission? Mark tells us that they are casting out many demons. Mm -hmm. So this ministry of setting people free from oppression, and um, it, it con continues. We saw Jesus do it, model it, and now the disciples are, are doing that as well. And then what else? He says, in the anoint, in anointed with oil many who were sick and then healed them. So the healing ministry of Jesus is also being passed on to the disciples as they go through this uh, great commission. So they have the power to heal in Jesus' name and, and to heal many different people that they come across. Interestingly enough, it points out that they anointed with oil, which doesn't necessarily mention in Mark that Jesus was doing that. Um, a healing ministry uh, is about... Um, being healed for something. And I think that might be what this anointing of oil is trying to signify. Uh, oil was symbolic of setting somebody apart for ministry or for purpose for God. So Jesus, again, in his healing and his, in his helping meet needs ministry, the goal was still a change of heart and mind and action and life. So um, they were setting people apart and anointing them with oil as they healed them. So Jesus faced much opposition, but he continued to press harder and, and harder. And he uses this multiplication uh, model that we see here, sending the disciples out two by two, investing in others, and then having them do the, the same. It's this beautiful picture of, of how we build leaders and how we reach more people for the gospel. And this really should be a challenge to us this morning, an example to us this morning as we, we think through this passage. So who are you investing in? Who are you raising up to do the same? Who, who are you choosing or, or teaching? Who are you raising up to replace yourself in ministry? So for those of you who are ministry leaders or, or serving in some capacity, have you grabbed someone and say, hey, come, come serve with me in, in children's church. Come, come serve with me on, on setup or worship team or, or whatever it may be. How are you doing in this the same model that we see Jesus do for the disciples? And if you're not serving yet, you're missing out on so much of the fun of church of being with others, of seeing the kingdom come, of seeing uh, needs met and ministering. It's, I'm telling you, serving is a blast. And if you're missing out on that, you're really missing out on a lot of the Christian life. So find somebody that you can help, somebody that you can be there, number two, uh, and learn from. And then you'll be, get to that place where you can raise somebody else up as well. Amen. I like that. So uh, um, apparently Jesus' ministry was a pretty good example here because his fame begins to spread. Check this out. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. 
But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So they hear of it. Yeah, King so Herod, that King Herod hears of it. Now, what is it? Well, I think the it in this instance refers to Jesus' miracles and authoritative teaching combined with the fact that even his disciples now are doing the same thing. And so the, his fame, his, his name is, is growing, his recognition is growing, his followers are growing. And so King Herod even hears of it. It's becoming a movement. It is. And as we've seen previously, uh, when people observe the authority and the power uh, of Jesus, they quickly try to figure out what's going on. They, they try to rationalize it in some way, figure out the source, figure out Jesus, etc., and verses 14 and 15, uh, they show us some of the theories that were out there that people had purported. One was that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, which is kind of weird because the last thing we heard about John, uh, Mark wrote that he was arrested. It's kind of a spoiler, isn't it? Feels like a spoiler. Uh, another idea people have, this is Elijah. Elijah is one of the greatest prophets of old and one of only two men to never have to taste death before they entered heaven, him and Enoch. So uh, they, there's a lot of stuff out there in Judaism about Elijah coming back. Uh, in fact, even some of the prophets that are in Revelations and Christianity, we think maybe it's Enoch and Elijah. Uh, we, we don't know, but a lot of people said it, it was Elijah who's, who's come back from heaven. Um, or, and others, this is just a prophet. This is, this is a new prophet, like the prophets of old. Um, it almost seems like each one like takes a little less faith to believe, a little less heavenly <laughs> as they went. So, but these are kind of the theories that are out there uh, about who this might be. And Harry also gives us an opinion here, and I, th I think because the next couple sets of verses is going to highlight him and in, in, in John the Baptist. So he says, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So he kind of falls in that, that first camp there. But um, let's, let's kind of take a look at why this is a big deal. And, and we're, gonna, we're getting ready to go into a story that now Mark has given us the spoiler about before we even <laughs> get to the story. Um, but I, I think the overall idea is that Jesus faced opposition, just like um, John the Baptist had, and just like the disciples were going to come into um, later on in their ministries as well. And, and opposition will come for any disciple of Christ. These disciples, and then today, if you are a disciple of Christ, you will face opposition. You will face persecution in, in some way. That's, that's a given, and we, we see it through examples here in Mark. And we're pretty sure that Mark sandwiches these two stories together on purpose to highlight some of those facts you were just talking about, and so that's why we're preaching them together on purpose as well. So now we get to the story of how John the Baptist perished, and we believe the author's intent is to encourage us and even inspire us, even though this is a, a, a difficult thing to deal with, like the martyrdom of a saint. But um, it's going to become obvious really quickly why Herod has such a guilty conscience in verse 16 and thinks that this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. So, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he had heard him, he was greatly when he had heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Aha. So this is why John the Baptist was arrested in the first place. Uh, according to Old Testament law, Herod had sinned greatly when he had an affair with his brother's wife. And then she divorced her husband and married Herod. And John had called him out. I'm sure John knew it wasn't going to be a popular thing to tell Herod that he was in sin. And Herod was quite a bit more powerful than John, but John the Baptist did it anyway. When we call sin, sin, this is bound to happen. It's a bound to, especially in the culture that we live in today, it is bound to make people angry. Um, you know, we just had an, an email from somebody interested about the church asking questions. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? What do you believe? Is this okay? Or is this okay? And, you know, we, we took some time to kind of discuss as a pastoral staff and and write kindly and graciously what we believe, what we see in Scripture on these different uh, subjects. And so we don't we, we haven't heard back from that person at all. But um, when you call sin, sin, and when we look at Scripture and we say, this is what God has told us is right, and this is what God has told us is wrong, people are bound to get frustrated and angry. And, and so... That's what happened here. But interestingly enough, it, it wasn't even Herod that was the one that was angry. It was his wife. Apparently, he kind of still had a conscience, and he, he viewed uh, John the Baptist highly. And so here you have Herodias, the woman who's involved in this love triangle, and she's the one who hates John and wants him dead and, and wants to get rid of him. She loathed him. She, she was angry. <laughs> Uh, Herod has this interestingly conflicted relationship with John the Baptist. He would apparently visit John the Baptist in prison and listen to his preaching, perplexed and yet listening gladly, it says. So he's conflicted. He, he's like, I know I'm in sin. I know he's calling me out for it. I know he's right. But at the same time, Herodias is pressuring me. All right, I'll just arrest him, but I'm going to protect him in prison. I really want to go listen to him. The things he has to say are so interesting, and they seem so true, and I feel it, but, but, but maybe not that much. I, he's really conflicted. So, uh, <laughs> but we're going to find hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. Does that sound familiar? Anyone uh, call it out? What book did we study recently? Esther. Yes. The book of Esther has some similar verbiage. Now let us, let us warn you right off the bat. These few verses, this is not a PG scene, not PG at all. It is very much rated R. Uh, this was a sexual dance performed by Herod's stepdaughter for a bunch of dirty old men. 
It was the striptease that uh, pleased these men so much that Herod made this crazy promise. And as I said, it's really similar to the promise that King Ahasuerus in the book of Esther made to Esther, saying, up to half of my kingdom. Um, we talked about it then. It's, it's kind of a proverbial, hyperbolic statement of generosity. It, it, it's not necessarily meant to be taken literally. Um, I was it's very not very wise. No. Because if you do this more than once... Well, you do it twice, and you're de- you're out seventy five percent. That's how my math <laughs> works. You're, you're voted out. You get fifty yeah. percent, then you get fifty percent of that. You're you're going to lose most of your kingdom just two times of b- making this extravagant promise. So, both here and Esther, again, we've got this statement made, really big statement. Both times in a drunken state, and drunkenness often leads to bad decision making. Um, also, another similarity, you might remember that Uncle Mordecai was kind of behind the big ask that Esther was going to ask of the king. Well, there's somebody pulling the strings behind the scenes here, too. Uh, however, Herodias is a lot more malicious and evil than uh, Uncle Mordecai was. Hmm. When she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me, once the head of John the Baptist, a platter, on the platter. At once. At once. At once. Immediately, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Um, this is not good for many people, but it shouldn't be a surprise to us, though. Um, sexual sin is, that's Herod's initial issue here in this story. So he is pleased. He's aroused by his daughter-in-law again, sinning more. He's drunk. Oh, sexual sin got him in the first place. Yeah, he went for his brother's wife. It's sin after sin after sin, um, and so now he's kind of painted in a corner. He's back against the wall. He's protected John thus far from Herodias up until now, and so um, we'll see. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. <coughs> the king was exceedingly starry because of his oaths, because of his guests. He didn't want to break his word. The snowflake of sin had become the snowball of sin. It had become the avalanche of sin, which is what sin does. It gets worse, and it gets worse. And I mean, could Herod have gotten himself out of this mess? Yeah. I mean, he really could have. He could have said, I promised you a gift, n- not a crime. He, he could have said, I promised you a gift, not your mother. He could have even used the Old Testament law. Leviticus 5 talks about if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly, and it's hidden from him that he comes to know about it, he will be guilty in one of these. But all he has to do, there's this outline of going to the priest, of saying, listen, I, I, swear, I swore an oath. It was thoughtless. I didn't realize it. I'm guilty of breaking the oath, but I'm not going to be guilty of this egregious sin. There's a pathway 
for this happening. And he doesn't take it. Because I think, I think when we're considering sinning, like it, it, it doesn't seem that bad. I'm, I'm paying into corner. I'm, I have to do this. It's just, it's inevitable. It's been inevitable. But I tell you, once you've sinned, and you really see it for what it is, and then you, you feel the full weight of it. Now, going back a few verses, we see why King Herod was so guilty. He's like, who's this Jesus guy? It's got to be John the Baptist. Come back from the dead to curse me, to haunt me, to come into my kingdom. I'm in trouble because I did something awful against God and against John the Baptist. So when the disciples hear of it, they came and they take his body and they take it to the tomb. This is kind of familiar to us because I think Mark purposely highlights the similarities between John the Baptist's death here and Jesus's death. Yep. It's kind of a, a foreshadowing, if you will, of, of sorts. Um, so this passage shows that people who preach, who, um, who share the gospel, who preach that repentance uh, and point to Jesus, the Messiah, that he is the only one, those people, for those of us that do that, we can expect opposition and persecution and imprisonment and maybe even um, a martyr's death. That is what we can expect um, as we look through this, these stories and, and through the rest of, of Scripture. And I think there is a comfort for disciples who suffer th- for their witness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think there is comfort in the grand scheme of things. Um, it n- doesn't necessarily relieve them from their suffering here on earth or maybe even hold out the, the hope for escape, but it does enable us, it does enable those um, people to see that they are in the best of company. Hmm. The disciples that share the word of God with others, we can expect that persecution, but we are in it together. And so that's the encouragement, I think, from it. Yeah, I think historically martyrs have found strength in remembering that they are in, uh, they're part of a large company who have shared in the sufferings of their Savior. Um, in the news, just this week, uh, we learned about Reverend Lawan Andini. He was a, a pastor, a Christian leader of other pastors in Nigeria. And on January 2nd, strangely enough, my birthday, in uh, an attack by the, uh, the group Boko Haram, which you may have heard of in the news, um, he was kidnapped. Um, three days later, on January 5th, a video was released. This is a, a, a screenshot from that video of Andimi pleading for help. Um, while he, he asked his fellow church leaders to help him by soliciting the state governor um, to intervene, he was also... He was calm and resolute in the belief that God was in control of his situation, no matter what happened. Um, this is his very words. By the grace of God, I will be together with my wife, my children, and my colleagues. If the opportunity has not been granted, maybe it is the will of God. I want all people close and far, colleagues, to be patient. Don't cry. Don't worry. But thank God for everything. On Monday of this week, uh, a reporter broke the news that Andimi had been beheaded. In the midst of a life-threatening situation that did indeed take his life, he 
he understood something that I'm not sure I even fully grasp. And that is that God has the power to deliver me, and he also has the power to make something good from me perishing and deliver me into his hands where I'll be safer than I've ever been. What Pastor Landimi did not do was renounce his faith, beg and plead for his life. And what he did not do was change his message. He simply trusted in the will of God. And because Pastor Lawan and Dimi put his faith in Jesus Christ right now, he's more happy, he's more whole than he's ever been. This is this year. This is today in this world. And in America, we don't face typically the life-threatening kind of opposition, but we may. I need to be ready, and you need to be ready. And especially when we face lesser opposition, like just rejection or hatred, people thinking that we're narrow-minded or naive or whatever it is, something that hurts our pride, we need not change our message. We need not compromise what God says, but instead have faith that he can deliver us from that persecution or he can glorify his name in that persecution. And that our goal is to be ready to die well by living well. If we start at the end of where we want to be when we die and live backwards, I think there's some real wisdom in that.